Welcome to Superintendent Radio Network. I'm Guy Cipriano. We're continuing our Tartan Talk series by having a conversation with Drew Rogers. Drew is doing terrific work on classic golf courses in the Midwest and Northeast, and he's also doing terrific work on more modern golf courses in Florida. We thought it would be great to have Drew on the podcast to talk about some of the differences between working on a classic course compared to a modern course. But before we get going with Drew, we'd like to thank Better Billy Bunker for supporting this podcast. Better Billy Bunker is not only a huge supporter of the American Society of Golf Course Architects, Better Billy Bunker supports a number of industry efforts, including the work of golf course superintendents. So we're glad that they're on board, and we're glad that Drew was able to take some time to join us. Well, Drew, thanks for joining us. It's great to have you on the podcast. I'm really excited for this conversation. And you have just returned from the American Society of Golf Course Architects annual meeting, and it was in Scottsdale and Phoenix. What were those few days like, and what does somebody in your position try to accomplish when you go to a meeting like that? Thanks, Guy, first for having me on. Glad to be uh, with you and your audience. And, yeah, I, I did just return uh, yesterday from uh, Phoenix and Scottsdale. Um, we had a great ASGCA meeting out there. It's, it's always enjoyable to gather with fellow architects and share thoughts and ideas. And, and of course, we, we get exposed to a few golf courses along the way. And, but more than anything, it's the camaraderie and, and the exchange of information. There's a, there's a free flow of information between fellow architects, which I think is, is pretty unique. And, you know, while we're one hand competitors today, but yesterday we were real, we were real comrades. And I think that's pretty unique in, in any business, uh, but especially ours. I think what a lot of people don't understand is a lot of architects like yourself are running small businesses and it might be just you or one or two other people helping you. How nice is it to go to a meeting like that and have some other people to bounce ideas and, and thoughts off of? Well, I, I think it would surprise people that we do it regularly. You know, when I go to an event like that, yeah, you're, you're hanging out with other guys, some that you've known for a long time and some that you're getting to know perhaps, but I, the, the exchange of information is, is very open and it's not guarded like you would think. Um, and, and we regularly sit down, you know, after dinner or we're having a drink in a bar or something and we'll debate and, and share thoughts about, you know, golf courses, about the game, all sorts of topics to the point where even, you know, the, the conversation might even grow into saying, hey, I've got a project at this certain location or a certain client. It'd be fun to have you be, be a part of it or, you know, to sort of collaborate together. I think we'd benefit from sharing your ideas along with my own or something, you know, and there, there's that uh, sort of invitation among a lot of these guys to, to kind of get together and pull together ideas and work together. And I think that's really unique. You've been an ASGCA member for close to 20 years. How do the conversations at these meetings compare now to when you joined the, the society? Are you talking about different things than you did 20 years ago at these meetings? Yeah, some things are similar, but yeah, I mean, the game has changed. The business has changed uh, with it. We're, we're, we're all getting older as we, as we move along, too. So hopefully the ASGCA, and I think it is, is getting much stronger 
stronger in the way that they serve the members and and um, the way they think about the game and and how we try to prepare uh, ourselves to do good work and 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 to represent the game very well. Um, but you know we're studying golf courses, we're studying the game, uh, we're studying the business, and yeah, there's there's certainly changes that we've seen and beyond the growth of the game that we saw in the 90s and early 2000s now you know just like you see work has changed it's it's gone from new golf development and real estate golf that that hit the boom you know much more of it now is focused on on renovation and restoration and and smaller projects smaller type improvements to to facilities to help them uh, continue to live and to prosper so a lot of what we talk about deals with strategies to, you know, continue to be innovative and progressively thinking towards how we can help our clients. How would you characterize the business right now? Are we still on this nice little renovation, restoration wave that the industry has been on the last three or four years? Is it slowing down? Is it picking up? How would you characterize the market? And Architect has a really good seat for it. Yeah, I, I think it's continuing along. I don't know. I, I look at a lot of the the, um, the the older course, classic course restorations. You know, a lot of that work has been done, but now it's kind of um, sifting down to a, another tier of of those kinds of uh, clubs or courses. And there's still plenty of those that are looking at dressing some of their heritage and, and making improvements at the same time. And, you know, then you've got the whole other end of the spectrum, you know, more of the, the, the developer-initiated projects, those that we did build during the boom. So much of what was built, like down in Florida, for example, in, in all the golf communities down there, it, <laughs> those golf courses were developer-driven. They weren't golfer-driven. They were built to sell homes. They were built to, to uh, sell memberships. And the golfer got lost in all of that. And that's unfortunate. But at the same time, you know, now architecturally, as those, those golf courses are uh, sort of maturing in terms of life cycle and their infrastructure, it's time to make improvements. You know, they need new irrigation. They need updated greens and they need updated drainage and, you know, vegetation gets unruly and cart paths start to break apart. The next thing you know, you're kind of in need to tear a golf course apart and put it back together again. Well, timely also in the sense that we can um, we can also take advantage of, you know, all the disruption and also make adjustments to the design at that point. You know, the many of the folks that joined those clubs when they were originally developed and opened – a lot of them are still there. They're just 20 years older. And so the brand of golf that they seek to enjoy is many times, you know, it's, it's a little too much um, if the golf course hasn't been softened over time. So, you know, a lot of what we're doing is addressing some of those needs along with infrastructure needs. So we're, we're doing a good bit of that too. Drew, in preparing for this podcast, looking at your website and one quote that you have on there really struck out to me uh, you write the single most important effort i make with my clients is to listen 
How much of your success and longevity in this tough business is linked to just the simple art of listening? Professionally, I, I think it's important, no matter what you're doing, to listen to your client. Uh, I think if, if you're willing to listen and give them the opportunity to speak, no matter what they say, you're going to find something of value or uh, a, a way to to find a successful solution that, that will please them. But you have to be willing to listen to pick it up. I've always had this, this uh, sort of philosophy that when I set foot on a property and, and meet with a client, you know, they'll, a lot of times they'll ask you immediately, well, what do you think? What would you do? <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm not necessarily always prepared to answer that question because, number one, it's not my club or it's not my course. I don't pay to be here. I, I you know, this is not my investment. It's your investment. It's your club. It's the place you go um, with your friends and family to have enjoyment and, and to play the game. So I think it's really important that you, you know, as an architect, you're able to identify with um, how, how they want to experience that golf course. And only then do I start to say, well, okay, if that's the case, then this will be important or that'll be important or this will have a good impact or that will have, you know, a, a, a positive uh, uh, influence on, on play or whatever. But I think the two go hand in hand. And, and if I'm going to do good work for a client, it needs to be somewhat collaborative in the sense that, I need to understand what, what it means to them, and only then can I, can I help them get there. You're having these conversations. What are clients and prospective clients telling you? Is there some commonality in what facilities are looking for right now? Well, sometimes they, they overlap. Um, sometimes it's about course conditions, um, which obviously has, has sort of a different um, – um, reaction from me in terms of solutions, but a lot of times they say, "Look, we're um, we're an aging membership, or we're a developing membership, uh, whatever." They'll they'll tell me what their what their makeup is, and a lot of times it it really does stem back to enjoyment and playability and making the most of their time while they're on the golf course. Uh, I find that that's pretty consistent no matter what. Um, and, and just the mere mentioning of enjoyment usually inspires a whole round of, of commentary, you know, from, from any of my clients, whether it's folks at Old Elm in Chicago that we did, which is just, you know, classic restoration or, or it could be, you know, a, a private club down in Naples, Florida, for example. And no matter where we're at, people want to have fun playing the game. And so I'm really working to be responsive to that. But it's, it's sometimes in different ways because different things are appealing to different, different people. So, again, that's why it's important to listen. When you're a golf course architect or a golf course superintendent, you're dealing with a lot of people that have a lot of uh, opinions, and they may be different, differing opinions. How do you develop the tact to, to listen to all those different 
opinions? Well, first of all, you, I don't know. I, I try to listen to that opinion. I want that person to feel like I am listening and that I do hear them. Um, but then I think we have a responsibility to also educate. And I guess I've been at it at least long enough now that, um, you know, I've, I've come across the, uh, enough of these um, opinions or, um, or comments that, that we receive from board members or committee members or, or just, you know, members that play golf and they, they have an opinion. But you learn to you learn that they're very similar uh, over the course of most of your work, and you you get accustomed to you know having typical responses that that address those those concerns, and it's almost kind of funny because you you go from one club to the next working, and 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 they're the the people are very similar from club to club. You know, you got one of these or one of those. There's always a Mr. Jones. There's always a, uh, a Mrs. Smith. They just, they're in a different body, and they have a different voice. But they're saying the same thing, and you hear them, you hear the same comments all the time. But I think we just get well adapted to, um, to helping educate them, help them understand why they feel that way, and, you know, give them options of, another way to think about it and you know then we can come forth with a solution dang you just wrecked my my next question my next question was going to be so you, you you have a very diverse portfolio you work in the the midwest and northeast on classic clubs you work in florida on more modern golf courses so i guess what you're saying is the differences between those projects maybe aren't as great as somebody would initially think uh some things are different some are not but they're all golf courses and and they're all meant to do the same thing they're meant to provide enjoyment the palette might be different certainly the bones of the architecture might be different but the end goal is is usually pretty similar and so you know the things that we do on a midwest course for example they're not that far off from what we're doing in a you know in a course in fort myers for example, it, 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 it's really just getting in tune with the user at the end of the day. And, and you know, we're seeing a, a, an, an aging user right now. And the things that they enjoy, we need to be responsive to. And a lot of times that means creating more options on golf holes, which is never a bad idea to begin with. Uh, you know, so, so much of what was build or has what or what has evolved over time has become increasingly more rigid uh in terms of design you know tighter corridors more trees deeper rough faster greens more length all that adds up and it does have an effect on playability it does have an effect on enjoyment and the amount of time it takes to play um and ultimately it's having an effect on uh, are sometimes the inability to grow this game. So, you know, through addressing those items um, thoughtfully within the context of, of the original architecture or the preferred architectural style, um, we can start to soften up some of those opportunities, but do so without 
you know, without losing the integrity of the design or the diversity of the design. That's the goal. And Drew, do you feel like some of the, those measures you take with providing options and more varied terrain is also helping the future of these clubs too? Not just giving the aging players something that they want, but helping the club for the next 15, 20 years down the road? Absolutely. I think we've got to be looking ahead and we've got to help them, you know, be prepared and be in position for what lies ahead. Um, and there's a good chance that, you know, I won't be around or won't be involved the next time that adjustments need to be made. So I'm very proactive in terms of um, my master planning efforts with clubs today. It's, it's not only to deal with uh, pressing issues or the most obvious um, uh, shortcomings that need to be addressed. It's it's about laying the found or the the, the framework uh, to to look ahead for twenty thirty years and to have a process in place so that they're not surprised that infrastructure is going to fail again um, and that they need to be planning for it proactively and they need not be surprised when they need to go through this process again. So I don't know. I, I, I do my best to, to prepare my clients in such a way that they're going to be thinking about things way ahead of time. So you've been able to really tap into the, the South Florida market. How are you able to do that? And what type of opportunities are there down in that part of the country for somebody in a position like yours? Well, I guess I've been fortunate guy because, um, you know, um, I, I worked almost 20 years with Arthur Hills, and, you know, Arthur did so much work down there. Um, in fact, I think it was Pete Dye that, that referred to Art as, as the mayor of Naples at one point in time. So just the concentration of work that, that Art was involved down there um, lent some opportunity because uh, – during my years working with art, I handled a number of projects in the Naples area. I became familiar with the market. I became, um, you know, friendly with a lot of folks that are involved in those those clubs and those facilities down there. So you, you build sort of a network and and you build relationships. And and I guess in the end, I've been fortunate to to extend some of those relationships on into my own. Um, you know, career on my own, which, uh, you know, I, that's, um, uh, that, that, that's been a real treat for me and, and a benefit, but at the same time, I'm not limited to that market. And, and I have relationships that, you know, are developed elsewhere and I'm, and I'm growing new ones. I think that's imperative too. So, but, but you apply the same philosophy most of the time and, and, um, you know, you hope you do a good job every time because the next opportunity you get, it's going to define your next one. So, you know, um, I've, I've been lucky, though. The, the work down in South Florida has, has really spurred on a number of other opportunities. And, and uh, I've even been able to go back to some courses that I was involved with uh, from, from the onset. And now we've come full circle, you know, 15, 20 years on and and now there's a need for for adjustment and to be able to be con you know continue to to have involvement with those clubs and those courses and their evolution is is particularly rewarding 
How would you describe the Naples, Florida golf market to somebody that's maybe only heard about it and has never experienced it? Well, South Florida is its own is its own uh, uh, element for sure. I mean, um, you don't go to Naples expecting, you know, dynamic terrain or even a whole lot of diversity. Um, you know, the the, the uh, golf offerings tend to be somewhat uh, linear and 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 similar in character. You know, you're dealing with pretty flat ground. Um, you're going to have a whole lot of water and wetlands, um, a monotone of, of turf, a lot of bunkers for definition. And um, that doesn't necessarily, um, you know, provide a, a very inviting environment for a lot of players. Um, I know a lot of golf purists would uh, tend to dismiss Florida, a lot of Florida golf, not certainly not something like uh, uh, stream song or, or some others, but you know, the, the typical uh, real estate golf course in a community, um, you know, one right after the other uh, down in Naples or even on the East coast, um, you know, around um, Boca and Del Rey and Palm beach, you know, it, it's, it's all very similar. So you have to work really hard architecturally to make those golf courses distinctive because you know that you're going to face the same elements, um, you know, as far as a, a medium in which the golf course has to navigate. And uh, those aren't going to change unless you're able to somehow locate a golf course that's on higher ground, it's sandy, and, you know, you, you can have more freedom to, to be creative. But um, that's a challenge. What are the shared characteristics between the clubs that are doing well down there? I mean, there are a lot of clubs that are doing great as well as any clubs in the country. Do they share some commonalities? A lot of clubs are working really hard to not only improve their golf offering, but they're, they're doing other things to make the, the club environment inviting and fun. Um, yeah, I, I did a lot of work at, at a place called Windermere Country Club, and, you know, those folks, I give them real credit. They, they have instilled a whole lot of life in their, in their club atmosphere. You know, they've got great workout facilities. They've got pickleball and paddle tennis and uh, great pools. And they've got really interesting active programs for their residents and members, uh, you know, juice bars and, and, um, you know, patio dining and, and all this really unique um, and, and inspired stuff that you, you drive up to the club and you walk in and, and it's just thriving. There's people everywhere. They're having a great time. There's all kinds of stuff going on. And golf is just a part of it. It's, it's not the only element that's present um, for a lot of those clubs. Now, there are some clubs that are golf-centric and certainly – those attract a different crowd, but there's a lot of diversity among those clubs down there. I think it's just a matter of each club sort of uh, fine tuning who they are and what they want to be and who they're going to attract and, and, and cater to. How does that club culture contrast some of the uh, facilities you've worked at in other parts of the country too? Because you've worked on some old, old classic courses. Like it's got to be kind of nice to work in the different types of 
climates, different type of environments, and different types of clubs. Oh, always, always, and yeah. got a, a club like in up in Chicago, uh, Old Elm Club, which is you know it's an all men's club. It's it's very private. It's frankly pretty small, and um, you know not a lot of play. But that's the way they want it. They kind of you know that that's who they are. They they they're low profile, um, and then you know you'll work at uh, another club like. Quail West down in Naples, where you know they're they're just bigger and more active and more going on, and they're they're catering to a completely different uh, uh, user and a completely different sort of uh, investor. So to each their own. I've always thought that golf was so great in terms of um, you know how many golf courses there are. They're they're all different. I think that. That, that shouldn't be lost on people who critique golf courses. Told so many times, a golf course has to be this or that or the other, and you know only only the best courses have certain characteristics. Well, okay, some sometimes that is true, but to each their own. I think it was during this last meeting in uh, Arizona with all the architects. Someone said, you know, uh, golf courses are like ice cream. There's all kinds of flavors, and my favorite flavor might not be yours. And I thought that really rung true um, because we all have different preferences and likes and dislikes. And the great thing is if you don't like the one you're at right now, you can go down the street and find another. And I think people should feel you know, free to do that. I think they should be encouraged to do that. Um, golf courses aren't built for one they're built for many and and there's lots of them and lots of variety and that's a good thing speaking of variety you've worked on restorations of courses designed by colt allison flynn ross bendelow park do you ever wonder what those guys would do if they had to work on some of the florida sites that people had to work on the last 25 or 30 years all the time no, I think that would be absolutely fascinating to be able to tap into their thought processes dealing with what we're we're dealing with now as opposed to what what inspired them then. In some ways I think they would be they would be forced into being responsive in very similar ways that we have to today. I mean, uh if 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 you consider, you know, if Donald Ross for example were uh, were alive today, he would have to face the challenges that we face in terms of, um, you know, the, the presence of the golf cart and the need for paths. And uh, we've got modern, modern irrigation. Courses are wetter. They're greener. They're lusher. Um, you've got uh, player preference. I mean, players want they want green turf. They want they want fast greens. They want elaborate bunkering. Uh, there are all these wants that people expect now, um, and you have to contend with it. Whether whether you, you know, that's part of your philosophy or not, you're going to have to face it because your user, your client, is going to make these these uh, requests of you. So how you deal with it, you know, is going to define that that. Um, 
that that eventual product, and it's going to partly define you as an architect. So I would love to see how these guys would have dealt with it. You know, um, they were de- dealing with other things. They had other challenges. Uh, they didn't have the ability to move Earth, and and um, you know they had to be very efficient with with what means they had. The the quality of the of the golf course routing from the very beginning was so so important um, because you couldn't move dirt. You know, you, you you couldn't afford to have something not fit. Um, or if you if it didn't fit, then you had to get you know ultra creative to find a way to to lay the how the hole out so that it was an interesting and fair experience. So. Yeah, I I would love to tap into those guys again. That would be fast. One of the things that really has fascinated me in my travels is that, like, the superintendents at a 36-hole big sprawling country club in Florida have different responsibilities and duties than maybe the superintendent at an 18-hole golf-centric club in the Midwest. What has it been like working with all these different superintendents, and have you noticed uh, some differences in their responsibilities as you go to these different parts of the country? Sure. No, you hit it on the head. Um, a, a lot of the guys down at some of these larger facilities uh, down in Florida, um, you know, they might be multiple course uh, facilities, but a lot of times their their responsibilities uh, are are far extended beyond the golf course itself. They get into common areas you know, around the community or around the club that um, you know can can grow grow the uh, the responsibility quite a bit um, and coordinating those those efforts and those needs among members and residents it's it, it, you know it, it's extensive um, by contrast you know a more of a just a, a core type of uh, golf course development up here in, in the north or the Midwest it could be viewed as a little simpler in terms of, you know, just less space, less moving parts, but, um, you know, demand can be just as high in terms of, uh, uh, of a presentation of the golf course. And there's different mediums and different challenges climactically. And, um, the, the one thing I, I find is that I, I just have so much immense respect for, all superintendents and course managers they they do such an amazing job people don't realize you know all the hats that those guys have to wear i mean it blows my mind how they have to manage people and they have to manage resources and and at the same time they got to keep their their clientele happy and keep them educated and keep them on track and it just seems like year after year after year they're being asked to do more with less. You know, whose budget gets cut first? Usually it's the golf course. And it, it's a little disheartening. I mean, I, I, I hear all this firsthand. I hear the frustrations. And, you know, the superintendent comes to me and says, you know, oh, they cut our budget again. You know, I've got to figure this out. And now I can't have 15 people. I can only have 12. But yet they want the greens faster and they want, you know, they want more fairway. And, you know, there's that balance that it, it just doesn't add up. And um, so I, I have so much respect for these guys. And, and I, 
really endeavored to work very closely to to help them and to engage them in what we're trying to do and and be responsive in a way that somewhere down the line we're going to make their jobs easier. Yeah, back to the uh, listening angle of this podcast, Drew. Um, how important is it for the architect to listen to the concern of the concerns of the super superintendent? <laughs> Imperative. <laughs> you know, I. I, I spend, uh, in, in fact, when I go in for for initial visits to a club, I mean, I, I make it mandatory. I want to spend an abundance of time directly with the superintendent. I want to tour the course together multiple times. I want to sit down. I want to ask questions. I want them to be open with me. It, it's really important for me to understand how that facility works, how that course behaves on a on a regular basis on a seasonal basis on an annual basis i i really want to get in tune with what they think works out there and what they what they don't think works and where they would like to see it go just as much as as where players and members want to see it go i i think the superintendent is is just a vital you know part of of uh, that direction because ultimately they're the ones that are going to be responsible for putting it out there for play every day and and managing the, their operation annually they need to be successful too and if if my design effort doesn't align with where they want to go or need to go then we're not going to be successful then what's it all worth so uh, getting getting close with the superintendent, maintaining that relationship, maintaining open communication, and working together collaboratively is, is imperative. Drew, what's success in an architect's mind? What would need to happen for you to characterize an experience or a project as success? Is it just simply getting it done, or is there something that has to happen after construction is complete for you to consider it a successful project? You know, that is a great question, and I've I've pondered that one throughout my career because somehow success ultimately, you know, defines us. It defines whether we're going the right direction or not. And it's it's been a hard thing to put my finger on what is success. Is, is success when your golf course gets ranked or highly rated, wins an award, um, it's on the front page of a magazine? I, I don't think so. I mean, those are just small little bits that they're nice, but ultimately, you know, success is, is not even about me the way I see it. The success that we have is more about the people at each club and working with them collaboratively. And after the work is done, they're happy. They're smiling. They come in from around the golf and they've had fun and they say things like, I haven't had that much fun in a long time. This is so much better. Uh, this is so much more enjoyable. Just to hear that, that kind of tells me we did our job. We listened. We were responsive. We were creative with solutions that made sense. The, the facility is successful. It's prospering. It's healthy. If, if those kinds of things are happening as a result of our work, then I think we're successful. And, uh, you know, all the shiny stuff that comes along, potentially, that's nice, but that's not how I define whether we've done a good job or not. 
last thing here, Drew, I think by any metric, your, your career personally has been considered a success. You got to work with Arthur Hills, and then when things got a little bit turbulent in 2010, you started your own firm, and you've been able to do all these cool projects all over the country. Just how rewarding has it been to see your hard work and your persistence pay off in the steady stream of work that you've received? Well, clearly I'm blessed. I mean, <laughs> you like to think that hard work and dedication gets you somewhere, and maybe that's some of it, but in the end it all comes down to relationships and being able to be trusted and being able to trust others and to work collaboratively with others and, and, and to produce results together. You know, I just feel blessed. As a, I can't imagine doing any other kind of work. Frankly, I'm not skilled enough to do anything else, so I'm glad this is working out. But I'm all in. I'm totally dedicated. Hopefully, if you'd ask others that I've been around, they, they would have that opinion. Um, but um, get up every morning feeling great about what I'm doing. I enjoy it. It's fun. It's inspiring. It's motivating. Um, and I hope that carries through with the work that, that is produced and I won't grow tired of it. If, if, if I do, then it's because I'm not able to, to enjoy it anymore. It's gotta be fun. And as long as it's fun, I'm going to keep doing it. Well, Drew, this was great. I had high expectations for this podcast. I knew that your enthusiasm would, would come off in the recording. Uh, thank you so much for doing this and hope to bump into you again soon. My pleasure. I look forward to it. Thanks so much, Guy.